the National Archives podcast series, Never Forget, The Holocaust and Nazi Persecution, presented by Ella Kashmarska and Lauren Wilmot. This talk was recorded on the 27th of January, 2016, at the National Archives, Kew. Well, today's talk is really designed to showcase some of the key documents that the National Archives hold on the Holocaust and Nazi persecution. It's really a very small amount that we can show you today because our collections on this subject are vast, as probably the majority of you would know. I'll begin with talking predominantly about the end of 1942, the beginning of 1943, and some of the key documents that we hold here, and those are very popular documents among Holocaust historians, and they have used and analysed them very well indeed. So some of you may know those documents. But they're all marked and all on display if you want to have a look at them at the end of our talk. Lauren will follow on with um, some sort of documents on post-war, mostly war office files, yes. And uh, they're also uh, on display for us to look at at the end of the session. Uh, The good news is that the... um, the actual guide on Nazi persecution is now online, so um, it doesn't mean that I, I'm not going to say anything about how to search for them, but I can keep that to a minimum. And I think they cover pretty much everything on Nazi persecution and the Holocaust. They don't cover the kinder transports, but that is covered in a separate um, research guide on, um, child, on, on refugees in general. Documents on the Holocaust and Nazi persecution are complex to research, and uh, the few documents that I have chosen are the ones that I think really are, at the periods of that time, very crucial, especially when the British government received them. But I would like to begin with a document from 1938. And we have lots of these files, FO371s, which contain reports coming from the embassies and also consulates from occupied territories. They are really describing the persecution of the Jews just after Kristallnacht. So they're very interesting to look at. Also amongst our collections are documents, although rather erratically pe- placed through the FO371s relating to the kinder transports. And I'll just literally skim over this because I think this is a good example of how we can use our FO371s alongside other uh, collections like Home Office Records, Ministry of Health Records, and the Register General Records as well to explore further. The slide that I really want to begin with, for real, is this particular document, and this is known as the Regner Telegram. It was received by the Foreign Office on the 10th of August in 1942 from a man called Gerhard Regner. He was the um, representative in Geneva of the World Jewish Congress. Actually, by this time, the killing centres across Poland, which the telegram purports to, um, were fully operational. And by spring 1942, gas chambers were already built at Auschwitz-Birkenau and many Jews already being taken there for extermination. The telegram was reported by David Allen, who was um, a minister from the Central Department. He reported it as being a rather wild story. And this really was based on the phrases, really, within this telegram. The first one, numbering three and a half to four million Jews, being at one blow exterminated, a fact very difficult for anyone to comprehend. The telegram ends by stating that the source is generally reliable. Now, the Foreign Office was sceptical and needed confirmation of these events. 
aforesaid mentions, they wanted the reliability to be greater than just general. Even before the end of 1942, reports were coming in of killing centres. In May 1942, the um, Polish government in exile produced a document um, on events in Poland, and these covered uh, the terrible persecution and the um, gassings in great detail. These were published and were received by the British government also. Now, following the receipt of this telegram, another harrowing report came to the Foreign Office, and it came via the um, Royal Patriotic School. And it was by an eyewitness account who had been smuggled into the Warsaw Ghetto and also to a camp. Initially, the camp was said to be Belgets, but in fact, it is now known to be a holding camp of Belgets. This is the report, and we have a copy of it on our table for you to read if you want any greater detail. But the date is incredibly important, July the 22nd, 1942. The Jewish Council ordered to proclaim the decree of the German authorities dealing with the resettlement of all Warsaw Jews, regardless of sex or age, in the eastern part of Poland, with the sole exception of persons working in German factories or members of the Jewish militia. The daily quota of people to be resettled was fixed at 6,000. The person who was responsible or who was given the responsibility to deport the Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto was a man called Adam Czerniakow, who um, was head of the Judenrat, and he actually committed suicide. Um, he was not prepared to take out those orders. Jan Karski was a lawyer. He entered the Polish Foreign, Foreign Ministry in 1938, and after his capture by the Russians, he escaped and he served as a courier working in the underground in Warsaw and for the Polish government in exile. He reached London in November 1942 and was sent to the Royal Patriotic School, was interrogated, um, but came actually to report the general conditions in Poland in general, not just on the Jews. He was reporting on um, industry and other such, uh, and agriculture and, and, and anything really that the Polish government exile needed and wanted to know. However, this was the report that made him quite a well-known figure, quite late after, actually, because he took this news to America with him um, and they didn't act upon it. Um, in fact, Eden met with Karski, but Churchill refused. And actually, he was the only person who had been on the ground in Warsaw, witnessing what he witnessed and reporting directly back to officials. So this was an incredible, important piece of evidence. So the reaction to this, again was, right, what do we need to do? And there were many, many more reports. I'm just giving you some examples of what we have in our records, but there are many reports in, held in many different archives as well. Um, the reaction was... Sorry, the clicker mouse isn't working too well. Um, was this, really, a four-power declaration initially that meant 
Britain, USA, the Soviet Union, and China. It actually ended up being a three-power declaration. China was um, excluded from it. And um, it was really based on this Mr. Silverman, who was the representative of the World Jewish Congress in Britain. He came to Mr. Law in the Foreign Office and said that we might take the view that there was nothing that could be usefully done at the moment. If that was our view, it meant that nothing, in fact, could ever be done. He said that we would be an impossible position unless we took some steps to try and prevent this happening, even if we thought that the steps would be ineffective. And then he goes on to say the four-power declaration perhaps would be the first thing that needs to be done. That's not to say there wasn't a declaration sooner. In 1941, there was a nine-power declaration. The declaration is in its draft form on the table behind us. Um, the original is in PREM, in, in the PREM files, and I'm just focusing on the FOs at the moment. So, um, I'll move on to the next slide because I've just covered that. This is um, a copy of the draft declaration. And His Majesty's government in the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and the United States government condemn in the strongest possible terms this bestial policy of cold-blooded extermination. They declare that such events can only strengthen the resolve of all freedom-loving peoples to overthrow the barbarous Hitler's tyranny. They reaffirm their solemn resolution to ensure, in common with the governments of the United Nations, that those responsible for these crimes shall not escape retribution. Still, in 1942, the end of 1942, um, this is sent to the Fuhrer's headquarters. It is a telegram. It's part of RHW collections. It is a radio intercept. And it was discovered here in 2000. And it is a crucial part of Holocaust historiography because it gives in very clear detail the numbers of arrivals for the last two weeks of December. And then what follows is the annual numbers of arrivals by the end of December. You can see at the top it calls itself... Um, after Höfler, where it says at the bottom, Lublin Höfler Sturmbahnfuhrer, because it was sent by Höfler. And also it mentions Einsatz Reinhardt, Operation Reinhardt. And we go back to the, if we think back to the Regner telegram, the Regner telegram was about the Wannsee conference and was about Operation Reinhardt in its early stages. The numbers here are interesting because the last two weeks you can see to the 31st of the 12th Lublin, L, which means Majdanek, has a number, but B, standing for Belgets, has zero. So we know that there were no arrivals in the end of December for Belgets. But if you take a look at the annual report at the end, you'll see that Belgets has a figure of 434,508 people who arrived at Belgets, suggesting that Belgets was no longer operational. And the date here is the end of 1942. So this very short time period between 42 and 43 is incredibly important. There is a typo there for T for Treblinka. There's a five missing. 
but the total remains the same. The total that's been reported by Huffler to the headquarters is 1,274,166. A huge number. The document here, I think, is one of, one of the most powerful documents that I think I've read for a, a long time. It is a letter. It's a letter written by a man called Shmuel Zygilboim. Shmuel was a Polish Jew, and he fled Poland in 1939 and ended up in America, but was called back by the Polish government in exile to be representative on the Polish National Council. Previously, he was the leader of the Bund in Poland. It's a letter written as a final plea addressed to the Prime Minister and the President of Poland to take action to do something to save the remaining Jews of Poland. Written just after receiving the news of the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto, which was in April 1943. It was a protest against what he saw as the inaction of the world to respond to the horrors of the Holocaust. He committed suicide just after writing this letter. I'm jumping ahead to 1944 here, July 1944. Um, by March 1944, the Nazis had invaded Hungary and Hurtis' government were told to prepare for the deportation of all Hungarian Jews, approximately 700,000. In April 1944, two Slovakian Jews actually escaped from Auschwitz-Birkenau, having, having spent two years there. And they got across to Slovakia and they produced a 40-page report known as the Auschwitz Protocol, or the Thrba Wetzler Report, named after them. We have a synopsis of it um, translated at the back on display. But it contained such information, and this was information that was added after the report, things that they had probably forgotten to mention in the main report. 12,000 Jews are being deported daily from the territories of Carpathian Ruthenia, Transylvania and the district of Kosice where there, are used to, where there used to be 320,000 Jews. Those deported are sent to Oświęcim, which is Auschwitz. 5,000 going by train via Slovakia daily and 7,000 via Carpathian Ruthenia. And they make following suggestions. And the suggestions are here. That the Allied governments, especially those whose citizens are suffering in both these camps, should justify jointly address to the German and Hungarian a threat of reprisals directed at the Germans in the hands of those governments and that the crematoria be bombed. The report is at the back in, in greater detail. The response, again, takes us back to the 17th of December 1942 the date of the declaration. You'll remember that on the 17th of December 1942, a declaration was issued in the name of the governments of the Soviet Union, the United States, and the United Kingdom, and of the other allies, calling attention to the bestial measures and extermination which the German authorities were applying to the Jewish population in the areas occupied by them, 
and solemnly affirming that those responsible for these crimes should not escape retribution. Now, this telegram was sent to Moscow, to Molotov. And point number two makes, in spite of an unbroken series of military reverses during the past two years and the certainty of final defeat, the Germans are in no way desisting from their barbarous treatment of the Jews. Indeed, the contrary would appear to be the case. I'd like to end my part um, with probably very well-known words by now by Winston Churchill. There is no doubt in my mind that we are in the presence of one of the greatest and most horrible crimes ever committed. But I'd like to draw attention to the final paragraph. I need not assure you that the situation has received and will receive the most earnest consideration from my colleagues and myself. But as the Foreign Secretary said, the principal hope of terminating it must remain the speedy victory of the Allied nations. And now I'm going to pass you over to Lauren. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to move on from looking at the, um, what happened during the war and focus on the post-war period and uh, what records we hold here relating to the liberation of the camps and the post-war war crimes trials. So I'll start with the liberation of the camps. Um, so it's the Soviet forces who were first to liberate um, some of the major concentration camps in July of 1944. Um, and, of course, Auschwitz on the 27th of January 1945. Um, so precisely 71 years ago today. And uh, one of the reasons why Holocaust Memorial Day falls on today's date. Um, the British, however, formally liberated Belsen, um, Bergen-Belsen, um, which is often known just as Belsen on the 15th of April 1945, and that was two days after having made a truce with the German SS who handed over the the camp peacefully, uh, partly to prevent the spread of typhus. Um, So because Belsen was the main camp that the British liberated, um, the vast majority of our records held here um, relate to Belsen. So I will use Belsen as an example of the kinds of things you can find uh, within our records uh, relating to the liberation of the camps. So there are a number of series you can look in. Um, So... Uh, you have war diaries, the medical reports and photographs and I'll just go uh, briefly uh, explain how to search each one but as Ella mentioned the research guide has come out today and that will give you hopefully more more information on that Um, so the war diaries are searched by by unit uh, in the the war office files uh, so WA files Um, so you will need to know the units that you are looking for Um, so amongst the first units to enter Belson were the uh, 11th Armoured Division the 63rd Anti-Tank Regiment, uh, the 113th Light Anti-Aircraft Regiment, and then, of course, you had the medical units um, as well, such as the 32nd Casualty Clearing Station. So the war diaries of those units record in various detail what, what, what they discovered. Now, in addition to the, to the war diaries, you have medical reports, and they were written not only by the, the medical units who went into Belson but also by uh, doctors from various European countries who, who visited Belsen to, to assess the situation and decide on, on the best course of action to take. Now, they're largely searchable using the term Belsen within the series FD1, uh, which are Medical Research Committee papers, and WO222, which are Medical Historians papers. Now, on top of that, um, and what the files also contain are photographs. Um, many of those are, can be found on our image library, 
Um, and I've just given you a, a couple of examples here of the kinds of photographs you might find. Um, obviously, the photographs can be, well, as with all the documents, can be particularly sensitive in nature. So, so do bear that in mind when you are uh, researching that. Um, so what I would do now is give you a brief overview of really what you can find within the records on, on what they discovered and then how they went about treating uh, the, the situation. And I think this is one of the few times where the documents really speak for themselves, so I'll mainly just read a few of the extracts. I don't think they need much, uh, much more to add. Okay, so in the top one, uh, which is in a, a medical report written by Brigadier Glyn Hughes, who entered the camp as part of the Royal Army Medical Corps, he said, in the camp there was no sign of hygiene at all. Diarrhea and dysentery prevailed in, in these conditions, and with no sanitation available, a source of great danger was created. Apart from, the, uh, from these compounds, there were all other horrors, a crematorium with obvious signs of mass burial, and a gallows. The camp contained every kind of filth. And similarly on the second extract, um, if we just move to the, to the bottom paragraph here, um, so this was the uh, 63rd Anti-Tank Regiment. Um, they say a great number of them were little more than living skeletons with haggard yellowish faces. Most of the men wore a striped pyjama type of clothing. Others wore rags, while the women wore striped flannel gowns or any, o- any other garment that they had managed to acquire. Many of them were without shoes and wore only socks and stockings. And the next example, um, which was from the 11th Armoured Division's uh, war diary, that's really to give you an extent of the detail you can find within the war diaries. Um, so this was just the first page of a seven or eight page report, um, which is available at the back of the room. Um, and I won't read it all, but um, a couple of the most telling uh, extracts, I think, um, were, were this one. So if you go to the middle paragraph, and it says, The dead lie all over the camp and in piles outside the blocks of huts which house the worst of the sick and are miscalled hospitals. Approximately 3,000 naked and emaciated corpses in various stages of decomposition are lying about this camp. Um, But perhaps the most indicative comment came from the very start of this uh, report, and it simply says, it is impossible to give an adequate description on paper. And to me, that really highlights um, the atrocities uh, which were found. Um, So what these documents, I think, highlight are the scale of the task at hand um, that was both enormous and unexpected. Um, And the British Army were, in many ways, underprepared for dealing with the situation. Um, particularly since the war was still going on. So what I will do now is take you through some of the, in a bit more detail, um, exactly how they went about treating, uh, uh, dealing with the situation at hand. Um, So as this uh, document from the uh, medical report, written by Lieutenant Colonel Johnston of the 32nd Casualty Clearing Station says, he says, the first of all, we had to arrange for the burial of the dead. And then he goes on to say, during the time we were at Belson, a total of 23,000 people were buried. Uh, the second thing he said was to arrange suitable feeding, and that wasn't only to cover the mass starvation and, uh, and malnutrition. Um, I mean, many of the inmates hadn't received any food or drink for approximately five days before liberation. Um, but it was also to combat overfeeding. Um, and he goes on to say, large numbers are, are dying of overfeeding at the hands of well-meaning British soldiers. Um, who were giving part of their ration out of generosity to, to the inmates um, that had negative effects. And the next uh, thing he says was to 
get rid of the typhus control, uh, to, to get on with typhus control. So typhus was still raging through the camp. Um, about 25% of the 60,000 people discovered were said to have <coughs> uh, suffered from typhus. And the final thing, he says, was to get rid of all, all of the debris, um, really improve the sanitation of those who were still living in the camp. Um, perhaps the two biggest problems that uh, the British faced were starvation and how to treat the sick. So I'll just run through briefly, um, again, just to show you the, the, the level of detail that you can find within the records. So as I said, because the Antonis couldn't digest uh, normal food uh, or a normal diet, um, the reports show that it was imperative uh, that a return to a normal diet must be gradual. So for cases of extreme starvation, um, a special milk diet was introduced and these documents highlight what that milk diet was um, and it was a special mixture of dried milk, uh, water and sugar and one of the next uh, huge tasks that the British had to deal with was the treatment of the sick um, so as I said the 32nd casualty clearing station um, estimated in the war diary uh, the 80% of the 60,000 internees, so that's 42,000 people, required some sort of hospitalisation, uh, with the main diseases being typhus, dysentery and diarrhoea. Um, so to help with the treatment, uh, the Red Cross sent in six teams of volunteers and 100 British medical students were sent to Belson. And they used a Belson standard of fitness, which was used to prioritise those who needed urgent treatment and those who were considered uh, who didn't uh, and that standard of fitness was if they could stand and collect their food unaided so those who did need or were deemed to need the urgent treatment were evacuated to a new hospital that was set up in the, the former officers messes um, and just to give you some sense of scale of how, how uh, many sick people they were dealing with um, it was estimated that from the 22nd of April they were treating 500 people per day in, in these uh, makeshift hospitals. And what this uh, extract here, to me, highlights is, is, is again, the sense of scale. So 14,000 blankets were requested as urgent. And this was on the 18th of April, 1945, so only three days after liberation. Uh, 5,000 stretchers, um, 700 bedpans, and that was on top of 12,000 sets of pyjamas. Um, and I think that... that to me, that, that really highlights what, what the British had to deal with and the situation and atrocities in the camps. Um, so I think, as the World Diaries and medical reports have shown, um, Belson was perhaps the first time that British forces really became aware of the extent of the atrocities. Um, and in light of the discoveries, um, the, the British Army really feared that the, the, that the public wouldn't believe what they had seen. So the five photographic units of the army was, were sent in uh, to take photographs. Um, and I, I've put one example again on screen um, of the kinds of photographs that were taken. Um, these photographs and the descriptions were published in the media, so it's perhaps the first time as well that the British public became truly aware of the extent of, of Nazi persecution. And for this reason, it was Belson and not Auschwitz that really became the symbol of Nazi persecution for the British. Um, I should point out as well um, that repatriation was difficult, uh, particularly of the Jewish people who made up the majority of those found at Belson. Um, many of them, the, the, the former prisoners, didn't want to return to their former country of origin. 
So Belson, um, like many concentration camps, uh, remained a displaced persons camp until 1950. So that's five years after liberation. Um, so if you are looking for records relating to what happened to the concentration camps and the discovery of, of the camps, um, do remember to look beyond 1945. Um, so I hope that's given you a whistle-stop tour of the kinds of information you can find relating to the discovery of the camps. Um, and I'll move on now to talk about the post-war trials. Um, so... Trials occurred in each of the occupied zones, um, some almost immediately post-liberation. Um, the Bergen-Belsen trial, for example, um, which was run solely by the British, uh, the B- British military, began in September 1945. So that's only five months after the camp was liberated. Um, Ravensbrück, uh, which was f- uh, another liberated concentration camp, um, their war crimes trial uh, was also run solely by the British in 1946. But of course, on top of that, there was also the Joint Allied Trial in Nuremberg, the Nuremberg uh, Trials, uh, from November 1945. And in those trials, 24 of the most infamous Nazi major war criminals uh, stood trial. So because there were both zonal trials and uh, a Joint Allied Trial, the, the war crimes trial records can be found across a number of series. So trials run exclusively by the British, such as Belson, can be found in uh, the War Office records, so WO, um, namely in WO235 and WO309. Um, trials relating to uh, records relating to trials in other zones uh, and the Joint Allied Trial can be found amongst our Foreign Office records. And records relating specifically to the Ravensbrück trial um, can be found in the, in the series RW2. And those documents are searchable namely by the name of the trial, so Belsen, Ravensbrück, Nuremberg, etc. Um, what's held within those files uh, is a huge range of information, and hopefully I'll give you some examples uh, in just a minute. Um, but they also contain photographs um, relating to those put on trial. Um, and the two examples I've put on the slide just here relate to uh, some of the female guards who, who were put on trial, um, who made up 10% of the 37,000 concentration camps, um, who reigned terror, uh, 37,000 concentration camp guards who reigned terror in, in the camps. So some of you might recognise the one labelled number two, just on the uh, left there, um, as the notorious Emma Grazer, who was known as the beautiful Beast of Belson. Um, and what the war, what the records also contain is correspondence of how to deal with, with the perpetrators. Um, you, bearing in mind uh, the crimes that came to light were on such a scale that there was no precedent on how to deal with it. And for me, some of the most interesting uh, correspondence within these files are uh, the charges on how to charge the accused um, and how to deal with the perpetrators. Um, so I'll just show you an example that comes from the Belson that comes from the Belson trial. So the official charges for Belson, um, um, like many of the other uh, earlier trials, did not relate to the, specifically to the mass murder. Um, instead, they relate to, to war crimes, so they charged the accused with war crimes. As you can see, it says, in being in violation of the law and usages of war. Um, and they charged them with specific crimes against Allied, but not German uh, nationals, who were named in the charge. 
So you can see an example of one of the British nationals at the, uh, underlined there. It says Keith Meyer, a British national. But then it goes on to list various other nationalities. So the additional charge of um, crimes against humanity uh, used in the Nuremberg trials was not used in the, in the earlier zonal trials. Um, and I think it's important to add that it was a fair trial, so the accused did have a chance to defend themselves. So what was also contained amongst the uh, war crimes files are statements made by the accused when questioned about allegations uh, made uh, th and the charges that they faced. So the examples I will quickly show you relate to Irma Grazer, who was the picture. Uh, we saw a picture of her just a second ago. Um, she was one of the female concentration camp guards. And Bruno Tesch, who was the producer of the Zyklon B, used to gas the millions of prisoners. And I think these examples will show you the variety of people tried in the camps and, and their reaction uh, and their, their defence. So this one by Irma Grazer, um, she never denies beating the prisoners. In fact, she says she beats the prisoners not often, but quite frequently. And as you can see in, child, uh, in the section number seven, she says, I punish pr prisoners by making them kneel on the ground for periods of a quarter of an hour at a time. What I think is also particularly interesting is, is the question of guilt, which you can see in, in uh, section number eight. And she says, Himmler is responsible, responsible for all that has happened, but I suppose I have as much guilt as all the others above me. I meant by this that simply by being in the SS and seeing the crimes committed on orders from those in authority and doing nothing to protest or stop them being committed makes anybody in the SS as guilty as anybody else. And that was a line of defence used by a number of the <coughs> those put on trial in that it was those higher up who were the guilty party. Um, this next statement by Bruno Tesch um, is another interesting example of, a, of what you can find within the, the records. <coughs> he said he wasn't aware that Zyklon B gas should be used against human beings. Um, the, ne the next part of the document, however, goes on to show that he gave classes on how to use the gas um, and the amount of in kilograms of Zyklon B sold to the various concentration camps. And this extract here is one such example of that. So this is relating to Auschwitz. Um, and as you can see, at its peak on the 6th of August, 1942, 1,756.8 uh, kilograms of Zyklon B was, uh, were delivered uh, to Auschwitz. Now, the next page of the document goes on to say that the, the fatal dose for humans is 50 to 60 milligrams. Um, so finally, um, another invaluable source of information for um, anybody interested in this period of time um, are the statements made um, by the survivors um, of the camps. So both witness depositions, uh, poems and drawings by survivors that were used um, as evidence in the war crimes trials can be found amongst these files. Um, and there's some examples of the drawings and the statements at the back of the room. Um, and I, these give unique first-hand insights uh, into the experiences and daily life of, of a concentration camp. So this e example that I want to show you um, is by um, René Lecroux, who was a French political prisoner held in Ravensbrück. 
And this statement was used as part of the Ravensbrück war crimes trials. Uh, and she's testifying against specific crimes of individual guards, um, such as Dorothea Binns, who was one of the main female guards within the camp. Now, as you can see on this line here, in the first section, she says, uh, Binns went and finished off a victim with an axe in the cells of the bunker. And just in the, the beginning of the second paragraph, she says, beatings were carried out by SS men and women. Binns always gave the orders. Um, probably partly because of statements like that um, and other evidence uh, used in the trial, uh, Binns was sentenced to death by hanging, along with ten others uh, in the first Ravensbrück trial of 1946. Um, and I'll just go back to Belson um, just to give you some figures for that. So in, in the Belson trial, 11 of the 45 um, put on trial were sentenced to death, and that included three of the female guards as well. Um, 19 of the 45 were sentenced to various lengths of time in prison, which ranged from one year to, to life imprisonment. And that included male and female guards, but also capos, who were the prisoners selected by the SS to, to help with the administration and smooth running of the camps. Um, 14 of the 45 were acquitted at Belson. Um, so I hope that's given you a really brief overview of the kinds of information you might find relating to the war crimes trials. Um, we do have more examples as well at the back of the room, which you can look at uh, in more detail. Um, obviously, it wasn't exhaustive, but it's hopefully given you some idea of where to start. Um, I should also note uh, that the trials, of course, continued into the 1950s, 1960s. We had the Eichmann trial in 1961. Um, but they also continue up until today even. So Oscar Groening, known as the bookkeeper of Auschwitz, uh, was sentenced to four years imprisonment just last year. So just as with the liberation of the camps, uh, records will continue beyond 1945, so do bear that in mind when uh, conducting your research. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.